Let me tell you a story, podcast number 64. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, age of never mind it is a how truth long it's been. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Once again, we have an entertaining mix of stories for you in this podcast. But before we begin, I'd like to catch you up on my writing news. One more cover tweak by the very talented Ken Koberlein, and I think Winds of Hope will be ready for a cover reveal. The book is finished and with proofreaders at the moment, which is exciting because we're getting to the end of the process. We, of course, will let you know when Winds of Hope is released. You might even hear some fireworks and church bells and trumpets and cymbals. But that day will come. In the meantime, Steve will start us off with a long, short story by Peter Level from a compilation titled Passageways, and I'll read excerpts from Jeannie Kay's Prison Librarian Journal. Then Steve will close us off with a couple Eugene Shea poems. This is called Three Days by Peter Level, and it's from Passageways. The ground trembled, sending shudders through Matt Waymer's chest. The engine was bearing down on him, its loud whistle echoing off the nearby fertilizer shed and grain silos. He laid a dime on the warm railroad track, but the vibrations threatened to dislodge it, so he repositioned it in the center of the rail and held it there as long as he could. Finally, he released the coin and backed away. Hunkered down beside the railroad's rock bed, he watched the oncoming train curve toward him. A slight bend in the track gave him a good view of the long line of cars trailing behind. He was about to head for his usual hiding spot when he stopped. No, not today. He'd stay close this time. A sixth grader should take risks. Perhaps fear would cut through the heartache. Three days ago, he'd helped lower his mother's coffin into a deep grave in the Penny Hill Cemetery. The constant ache in his head and chest had to end. But if he forgot his mother for even a second, guilt washed over him like a flash flood. The earth shook, the train whistle bellowed, and a faint whiff of diesel pricked his nostrils. Matt's heart began to pound. He turned his back, holding his ears while the engine rushed by. A burst of wind struck him, nearly knocking him to his knees. The sound of the horn was replaced by the thunder of steel wheels spinning and scraping against the rails. Boxcars and flatbeds clattered and clanged past and soon fell into a click-clack rhythm, telling the world, She's dead. Gone. She's dead. Gone. Dead. Gone. He wished he'd counted the cars to distract his mind. 
but it was too late now. The passing of the last car left a vacuum in the air, amplified by the diminishing hum in the tracks. The sudden hush left him feeling bereft and forsaken. A cloud obliterated the summer sun. Matt sighed. But then he remembered the dime and scrambled over the sharp stones to search for it between the railroad ties. Sunlight reappeared, and a gleam caught his eye. He reached down to pick up the smooth, flattened silver. The coin was slightly bent, like it had conformed to the wheel. He could almost make out Roosevelt's smashed face. He checked the area for witnesses. His dad would have a fit if he knew he was playing on the tracks again. A lone, dark-haired figure stood by the fertilizer shed, watching him. He dropped the dime and shaded his eyes with his hand. Mom? She stepped back and disappeared behind the shed. Had he really just seen his mother? Matt leaped across the tracks and plunged into the ditch that ran alongside it. Mom, wait! Smashing through the thick weeds, he charged up the other bank. Milkweed pods exploded around him and released their musky smell. His only thought to see his mother again, he sprinted across the gravel parking lot, vaulted over a concrete barrier, and slid around a corner. On the far side of the highway, his slender mother was slipping into the passenger seat of a car. The door slammed shut, and the back wheels sprayed gravel when the car took off. He ran after the vehicle, tripped and nosedived into the dust. Ignoring the pebbles and thistles that bit into his arms, he sprang to his feet, but the car was already speeding down the highway. Matt darted onto the road, calling and waving his arms until he could no longer see the vehicle. Finally, he sunk to the pavement and buried his face in his arms. He began to sob, crying harder than he'd cried at the funeral. She was gone. Again. He felt the asphalt's heat burn through his pants and jumped to his feet, wiping tears from his cheeks with the back of his hand. The whine of an oncoming vehicle penetrated his consciousness, but it wasn't until an air horn blasted close by that he stumbled to the shoulder. Horn still blaring, a semi-truck flew past, creating a wind gust almost as strong as the trains. Matt didn't even blink. Abandonment. Loneliness and loss were now intertwined with confusion. He'd watched Harvey, the cemetery caretaker, bury his mother. She was dead. Yet, Matt staggered back over the ditch bank and railroad track to walk along a gravel road bordered by small square houses and tall cottonwoods. The corn dog he'd microwaved and eaten an hour earlier rebelled, and a headache pounded against his forehead. He felt like every freckle on his face was drilling into his brain. The sound of a crow cawing from a nearby telephone pole made his head hurt worse. He stuck his fingers in his ears and kept moving. The co-op's yellow single-story building was just ahead. Dropping his hands to his side, he hurried toward his dad's office. Maybe he would know what was going on. He passed beneath an open window. Despite the rattle of augers shuffling corn from one of the co-op's massive silos into a truck, he heard his father say, Get back here. Matt stopped, thinking he'd spoken to him. But then he heard a woman giggle. Not here, Arthur. Come on, Darla. You know I'm grieving. 
The secretary's voice was playful. I can tell by your grip. Matt heard a loud smack and another chuckle. Stop it, Arthur. Darla sounded serious. You should be with your son. He's taking his mother's death hard. I can watch the office. And leave my little gal all alone? You'll... Matt crammed his fist in his pocket and started down Main Street. Our car slowed and seemed to follow him. He looked up. It was Mrs. Johnson, his mom's friend. Her eyes were filled with sorrow and pity. I'm sorry about your mom. He nodded. She smiled at him, and then she was gone. He kicked a rock from the sidewalk into the street. The stone settled near the faded double line, somehow looking lonely all by itself in the middle of the street. Another car roared by. One of the tires caught the rock and sent it spinning away. He lowered his head and tried to ignore the world, but found he kept glancing around. Farm implement toys in the hardware store's window caught his attention. Beyond the display, a woman was chatting with Mr. Crowley, the owner. Mom! Matt's heart raced. That's where she went after he saw her. He was about to open the door when he realized the woman was Miss Morris, the first grade teacher whose classroom was next to his mom's second grade classroom. Matt shoved his hand back into his pocket. Was he losing his mind? Miss Morris had brown hair like his mother, but she was shorter and younger. All the way home, the afternoon's experiences played in his head over and over until the woman he thought was his mother became a shrouded haze. Had he seen her ghost? He stared at the sky. The tire marks beside the road were real enough. The only answer was that he'd seen a real person. His mother was alive. But where was she? The closer he got to his house, the stronger the feeling grew. Mom was alive. He knew she was. He marched up the steps and into the living room, letting the screen door slam behind him. Without pause, he picked up the telephone and dialed Ray's number. The rotary dial took forever to roll back to the zero after each number. Finally, the call went through, and his friend answered. It's Matt. You okay? Yeah, look, I need help with something. Tonight. Silence. Then, can it be tomorrow night? Tonight, Ray. It's got to be tonight. Sure. Okay. Tonight. Cool. Can I sleep at your place? I suppose. I'll call you back if my mom says no. Relief filled his chest. This was going to work. Thanks. I'll be there soon. Oh, do you have a shovel? Yeah. Why? I'll tell you later. Matt hung up the phone. He wrote his father a note about the sleepover, like his father would care, and packed a duffel bag. Before leaving, he checked the refrigerator for food and found a solitary milk bottle. He drank half the milk, returned the bottle to the fridge, and slipped out the back door. Ray's mom opened the screen door for Matt. Her straight black hair and generous smile caught him off guard and made him miss his mother. Tears threatened, but he choked back a sob and managed, Ray home? Come in, Matt. The look on her face was sad. How are you doing? More pity. Everyone seemed to feel sorry for him. But not as sorry as he felt for himself. He hated that feeling and had to make it go away. I'm so glad you came over, she said. 
raised in his usual spot, head on up. He walked down the hall to the stairs, passing the bathroom on the way. The smell of sweet, rotten wood filled his senses. Too much humidity in the Midwest is what his mother had told him. She was from Arizona, where the air was dry. She'd also told him stories about the desert and the desperados and bandits who had hideouts in the canyons among the cactus and coyotes. He'd begged his dad for a family trip to Arizona until his father slapped him hard. From that point on, he kept his dreams hidden deep inside, like he did the loss of his mother. He reached the top of the stairs. Ray, you up here? In my room. Matt opened the door. Model glue vapor assaulted him like a smack in the face and made his eyes water even more. Whoa, he stepped back. Ray looked up from his desk where he was working on a tiny airplane. Man, you look terrible. Matt ignored the comment and sat on the bed. I need your help. He wiped his eyes with his shirt tail. You're not going to believe this, but... He told Ray about seeing his mom and then explained his plan. By the time he finished, his fingers were numb, and he realized he'd been strangling Ray's pillow. Will you help me? Ray nodded. Of course. You believe me? Ray looked surprised. Have you ever lied to me before? No, but this is different. Only one way to find out. Tonight? Tonight. Crouched behind a broad bush, Matt watched the night descend on Penny Hill Cemetery and hide everything but the pale glow of scattered tombstones. The sound of rushing water and croaking frogs in the nearby river blocked all other noises except for Ray's breathing. One by one, stars and fireflies twinkled to life and competed for Matt's attention, but he kept his focus on Harvey's trailer. Earlier, they'd seen him walk past an illuminated window. Ray shifted, rattling the leaves in the next bush, and hissed, He hasn't moved. Let's go. Wait, he guards the cemetery until he goes to bed. He's not guarding nothing. My dad says Harvey just mows the lawn and picks up faded flowers. He guards the cemetery. Ray sighed. I gotta pee. Happens when I get nervous. No one's stopping you. Can't squeeze out a drop in the outdoors. You know that. Matt sighed and wondered if he should have brought Brian instead. Ray fell back in the grass. What's next? The trailer lights blinked off. Matt whispered, Grab your shovel. He snatched up his own shovel, pushed out from the bush, and stepped over a low stone wall into the cemetery. The night sky opened before him. Any other night, he would have fallen onto his back to study the white expanse of stars above his head. Instead, he pressed on. Maybe he was overreacting about Harvey staying awake. But the cemetery caretaker was also the school janitor. He had a way of outguessing their plans. Despite the lack of light, Matt had no trouble finding his mother's plot in the small graveyard. The turf lines, which had been dug three days earlier, were still obvious. Ray eyed the grave. You think she's not there? I have to know. What if... What if your mom is in there, Matt? What if there's worms and stuff? Then we'll see worms. Matt positioned his shovel in the turf line and stomped down hard. 
The metal slid easily into the newly disturbed ground. He lifted out a chunk of grass and flung it to the side. Ray stepped up beside him. Okay, let's do this. Just dig in the front area. All we need is to be able to open the top half of the casket. Soon, they'd removed almost a cubic foot of the freshly turned soil. His arms warmed to the work as he flung dirt to the side. From time to time, Matt looked up. First, their heads were level with the top of the new gravestone. After a bit, they were even with his mom's age, then her birth date and death date. He could barely make out the chiseled numbers in the dim light. His muscles began to burn. He'd been proud of his bulging biceps in school, showing them off to his friends and enjoying the reaction of the girls who watched from a distance. Now that he was actually putting them to use, his arms rebelled, but he ignored the pain. When fatigue set in, he doubled his efforts and thought of his mother. Was she alive or dead? Would they learn the answer tonight? The thick, rich smell of earth surrounded him and the air in the hole was still and cool, which surprised him. He'd expected it to be warm, like the night air above ground. But he was grateful. The exertion made him sweat. His breath came in gasps. I think it's safe to use a flashlight now. Matt glanced at the moon. If only he could sit on the tiny sliver and watch the earth, see where his mother was, so he wouldn't have to dig a hole in a cemetery in the middle of the night. The light switched on. He saw sweat trails on Ray's dirty face and felt the sting of salt in his own eyes. We've got to be close, Ray said. My arms are about to fall off. He paused. You hear that? No, I didn't hear nothing. Matt tossed a shovel full of dirt above his head and over the edge. We're almost there. Ray moaned. Matt, I can't see out of the hole. Matt could tell his friend was shaking because the light was flickering. What if a hand reaches through the dirt and grabs me? The light flashed wildly about the earthen walls. God, help me, Ray rasped. I'll be stuck down here forever. He felt for the holds they'd carved into the side. Quiet, Matt said. We're almost there. He drove his shovel down and hit something solid. In the stillness of the night, the noise resounded like a gunshot. Ray spun and churned at the dirt. Gotta get out of here. It was just... Ray scrambled up the incline. Dirt sprang behind him. Matt lifted an arm to protect his face just as a wicked scream pierced the night. Ray fell back into the pit, crashing into Matt. They tumbled downward in a flurry of dust and groans. A glaring light illuminated the hole brighter than day. Matt gasped. The beam was blinding. Could it be aliens? Who's in there? The voice was gruff, but human. It sounded like an old man. Like Harvey. Don't kill us, Ray pleaded. Don't bury us alive. Dirt trickled down the side of the grave. Heart pounding, Matt shoved Ray away and blocked the light with his hand. That you, Harvey? Matt? What in tarnation? Why are you down there? Ray scrambled to his feet. Harvey, Matt pleaded, you've got to let me finish. The light moved to the side, illuminating the roots that drooped from the edge of the hole. 
Come out of there, boys. Matt couldn't hold back his tears. He had to find his mother. Sobbing, he gripped the shovel and scraped at the dirt, trying to get through the last few inches before Harvey stopped him. The old man slid down in a shower of earth that left a dank taste in Matt's mouth. He ended his desperate scraping when Harvey straightened to full height in front of him, holding a massive flashlight at his side. The old man reached out a hand, and Matt felt his bony grip on his shoulder. He looked up at him, and in the man's aged eyes, shriveled face, and lean body, he saw something more than just pity. He saw hope. Harvey, I saw Mom this afternoon by the highway. I'm sure it was her. He hated the whine in his voice, but he couldn't help it. Please let me finish. I've got to know. The caretaker chewed at his bottom lip as if deciding what to do. Sit up there, he pointed to the rim of the hole. Both of you. Harvey's words whistled and sounded funny, like he didn't have his teeth in. But Matt was too tired to laugh or to argue with him. As he climbed, he fought the hiccups that always came after he cried. Still breathing hard, Wraith settled next to him. They dangled their feet over the side. Harvey handed up his flashlight and took Ray's shovel. They watched him clear the head of the coffin. This is cause you'll spend the rest of your life wondering what's what, Harvey said between shovelfuls. I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. So if you wake up in a few decades, nightmares haunting you, and you're cursing my ghost, just remember, I did it for your own good. Sometimes not knowing is worse than knowing. Funny, he quit scooping dirt took a long breath, and leaned down to pull the casket lid back. Matt aimed the flashlight inside. Ray gasped, but Matt just stared at the purple lining topped by a thin, lacy pillow. The coffin was empty. He looked at Harvey, who had a peculiar expression on his face, and then back at the coffin. She's not dead. I really did see my mom today. Harvey climbed out of the grave and took the flashlight from Matt's hands. Come with me. They followed him to his trailer, neither boy speaking a word. Matt looked up at the stars. The moon had moved across the sky. He wondered what time it was. The lights were on again in Harvey's trailer. So was the porch light, a welcome relief after the dark hole. Five stairs led to the door. At the base of the steps, Harvey said, Wipe your feet and brush the dirt off your clothes. They did what they were told, then followed Harvey inside. He motioned to the couch and left the room, but returned immediately. Matt thought he caught a glimpse of dentures between the old man's thin lips. Harvey lifted the receiver from a phone beside his easy chair and dialed a series of numbers. After several seconds, he said, He knows. Matt looked at Ray next to him on the couch. Ray shrugged. Harvey didn't speak for what felt like a long time. Finally, he said, He's a bright kid. You shouldn't have... He nodded, though the person on the other end couldn't see him. All right. He replaced the receiver. That the police? Matt ran a sleeve over his face, wiping sweat from his eyes. Am I going to jail? No, you ain't going to jail, Harvey sighed. 
We're going for a ride. Fifty miles and two farm towns later, Matt was roused from his travel stupor when Harvey slowed the truck to park in front of a hotel. He glanced at the caretaker, who looked even older in the artificial light. Harvey motioned with his chin. She's in there. Matt's heart began to thump. What was his mother doing in a hotel? Was it really her? How did Harvey know where to find her? But he knew better than to ask. He tried to get answers earlier in the trip, but had received no response to his questions. He was about to awaken Ray, who was curled against the passenger door, fast asleep, when Harvey said, Let him be, and opened the driver's side door. Heart racing, Matt stepped alone into the brightly lit hotel lobby, and there she was, his mother. She was wearing a pink robe and slippers he'd never seen before, and her hair was a different color. She looked tired and worried, but she was alive. He frowned. He wanted to reject her, to hurt her like she'd hurt him. She reached out her arms. He cried, Mom, and ran to her. Maddie, she held him close. I've missed you so much. Why, Mom? Matt sobbed. Why'd you pretend to be dead? He could barely say the words. She led him to a couch and sat next to him. Honey, there's something you need to know about your father. I don't care about Dad. He doesn't miss you. He likes Darla. Matt hiccuped and wiped his eyes. But I miss you, Mom. Conflicting emotions flickered across her face. I know. She drew his head to her shoulder. He closed his eyes and soaked up her presence, her sweet scent, her warmth. His mother was alive. Mom, I don't want to go home. I don't want you to go. He pulled away. But what happened? Why did you... She took his hands. It's hard for me to tell you this, but you need to know. Arthur Waymer is a mean, violent man. When my friends realized my life was in danger, they helped me figure out a plan. Your father needed to think I was dead. That was the only way I could escape from him. She looked deep into his eyes. He threatened to kill me, Maddie. Matt shivered and, for the first time, noticed the television at the other end of the empty lobby. The star-spangled banner was playing and a picture of a flag filled the screen. While he watched, the last strains of the song faded to static and the screen turned white. His mom slid a strand of hair off his forehead. I'm so sorry for putting you through this. But your grief had to be real, otherwise Arthur might have suspected something. He nodded. As awful as it was, her logic made sense. Harvey helped, and others. But they're sworn to secrecy. Ray knows. We saw your empty coffin. She looked him over. Is that why you're so dirty? You... Tears brimmed in her eyes. I would never have hurt you like this if I could have thought of another way to protect us. I'll make it up to you. Please don't let Harvey take me back. Don't worry. He's not going to do that. We'll start a new life together, you and I. She smiled. Arizona? Matt nodded. Yeah, Arizona. His mother motioned at the window and stood. Matt joined her. Seconds later, Harvey walked in with a barely awake Ray at his side. Ray stared at Matt's mom. You're really... 
She smiled and explained how important it was for him to tell people his friend had disappeared during the night. If the police questioned him, he was to say Matt ran away to his grandparents' house. She turned to her son. We'd planned to spirit you away after a few weeks and have you show up at my parents' place. They'll let us stay with them until we figure out our next step. What about Dad? She looked down, and he knew. His father wouldn't even miss him. He had Darla. Ray swallowed. If it means life and death, I'm telling nobody. Thanks, man. Matt slugged his friend's shoulder and leaned close. He lowered his voice. There's a flat dime by the co-op near the tracks. You can have it. Ray would know what he meant. Ray rubbed his pant legs and looked at the carpet. Thanks. Harvey touched Matt's mother's arm. I hate to see you go. You've been a huge help, Harvey. She stood on her tiptoes and gave the old man a big hug. Without you, neither Matt nor I would be here. I can't begin to thank you enough. She dropped down once again, flat-footed in her slippers. I'll miss you. Harvey looked embarrassed. Better head back. Gotta get the boy home and fill a hole before sunup. He rubbed Matt's head. Take care of your mom. Matt nodded. Harvey put his hand on Ray's shoulder, and the two of them walked out the lobby door. Matt looked up at his mother. Did I make trouble for you, Mom? Don't even think that for a minute. She put an arm around him. I'm just thankful we're together again. He sighed. It was really hard seeing you today by the railroad tracks. She turned to face him. What do you mean? When you ran from me and jumped in the car, that's how I knew you were alive. I wasn't by the tracks. She shook her head. I don't dare return to that town. In fact, I've been in my room all day waiting to hear from a contact who's arranging my, our, transportation to the next place. Matt frowned. He was positive he'd seen her. And the tire marks. It doesn't matter. She pulled him close. I'm just happy you're with me. He wrapped his arms around her waist. His mom might never understand, but it did matter. What happened today at the railroad tracks mattered a great deal. Here are a couple more entries from Jeannie Kay's Prison Librarian Journal. Her first one's titled, What's Going On? I have one patron who used to have pythons. He told me that at one time he was in Time magazine with 250 pythons. The pythons would have 85 babies at a time, I think he said. The magazine took a picture of him in a bathtub with all these babies. He was a little freaked out because some of them crawled up his shorts. He says the babies would bite anything, and so he was scared they might bite something important. But they didn't, until he had them all out and one bit him on the ear. He's an interesting guy, as you might imagine. Many of the inmates are very talented. It's too bad they can't channel their talent on the outside. In fact, I have some great workers. I keep thinking that if they just had the same worth that ethic on the outside, they would surely succeed. The meth cook I mentioned before is so talented at computer stuff. It took him no time at all to clean up records in our library catalog. 
This guy was abandoned when he was eight years old. His mother took his sisters and just up and moved away. He was by himself on the streets for a while until the children's services caught up with him. This might explain why he thinks he's doing well in his life as a meth cook and arms dealer. I had to lecture my inmate clerks the other day. We had an incident, and I was talked into reporting it by the other staff. So I did. Then the guy got mad because I wrote him up and came to my office and threw a fit. I told him, tough. But the other staff member backpedaled. Then apparently, a couple of our clerks made smart remarks when the guy complained to them, and their comments were passed on to me. So I had to set them straight. Because I was so new, I was very nervous, but I had to do it. I told them that we treat them with respect, and they know that I don't just write people up for nothing, and that there was more to the story that they didn't know. I said if they don't have respect for us, there are six or seven other guys who'd like their jobs. And then I said, there's the door. I was up at the gym the other day, and an inmate asked if I was a nurse. I said, no, I'm the librarian, and if you ever came to the library, you would know that. Another inmate was tickled by that, and he said, good one. But then I was worried that I may have caused him to lose face, which we need to be careful about doing. I asked another kid who was getting out if he was excited. He said, well, I am pretty nervous. I've been down for three years. That's a long time. He had on orange pants because he'd gotten into trouble. They normally wear green. His case manager or counselor said he had his own pair, meaning he was always in trouble. I asked the inmate how long he would be in a halfway house locally before he could go back to where he was from. And he said, oh, two years, but I'll get out in 18 months because I'll have good behavior. I pointed at his pants and said, oh, sure you will. His friend, also in orange, laughed. But I talked to him a bit more, so hopefully he didn't lose face. He said he fell near here. Down and fell are common prison terms. I was talking to the Sam Elliott lookalike the other day, asking what kind of books he was looking for. He said, well, I've been down for ten years, so I've read a lot of what's in here. So much for the guys who are only here three years. There are men in this prison you would not believe are felons. It takes all kinds, I guess. This section is more prison stories. I am getting more comfortable with my prison job, getting to know the guys a little better, and no, I am not looking for an inmate boyfriend. One of my clerks is so funny, but he tells the most fantastic stories. B.S., as it were. He has not done that since I had my big talk with them, which included a piece about them lying to me. I told them I had read their files, some more than once. I knew when they were lying. He has been working very hard ever since, cleaning up the whole clerk area, the magazines, etc. He said there was enough dust on the top of one shelf to plant a garden. I have some great clerks. One clerk asked if I thought he could get a job in a library when he got out. I told him it had been known to happen, but that I wouldn't count on it. It's hard enough to get jobs in libraries for people who are not felons. 
He is very fast at the computer stuff. He did, however, tell the law librarian how easy it would be for him to put a virus on our computers. Was that a threat? I hope it doesn't decide to do that. I have a new clerk, a very nice guy, who is a little more mature than the others. He provides a nice settling effect, I think. This is my biggest challenge. We have to try to keep them racially balanced, but my concern is how they get along with each other. I have one white guy who may be a racist, but he's been forced to work with blacks, Hispanics, and Native Americans on my crew, which has been very good for him. He gets along fine with the others. It's hard to keep the gangs from installing their people and trying to load us up on them. They would like to control the library for some odd reason. Just one of the dynamics of prison work. Yesterday, I learned that the python guy was telling the truth. He brought me pictures of himself and the snakes. The pythons had names like Julius Squeezer and Squeezopatra. Funny, huh? You never know. Truth is often stranger than fiction. I have done a lot of work for him to help him find addresses to write to all these people about his case. He says if he wins a big lawsuit, he will buy me lunch and a new computer for the library. Another guy said he was going to buy me a soda for the research I was doing. This is all talk, as I couldn't accept the stuff anyway, but it's nice of them to think of someone beside themselves. Then there is the cute kid who came up to my window. I have a half door on my office. And frowning said, Hey! I said, What? He said, Happy Tuesday, with a big smile. Now it is ongoing with us, back and forth. I was walking across the yard the other day, and he was playing horseshoes. And he said, Hey, come play with us. I said, Uh, the last time I threw one of those, it landed on the roof, and everyone got scared and left. He laughed. We see a lot of guys leaving, and I am so glad for them. I tell them, good luck, and I mean it. But the recidivism rate is high. My supervisor says the guys, like the Happy Tuesday kid who take responsibility for being there, are the ones who are more likely to make it on the outside, unless they are institutionalized which they tell me happens after about five years. We had a kid freak out the other day and go after a corrections officer with an exacto knife. Remember how I was wondering why I had to have baby scissors while the inmates could have exacto knives? Well, they might have that privilege taken away now. When my clerks use them, I always check to see that the blade is still in the little sheath when they're done. You never know. We have this read-to-a-child program where the guys read books to their kids on tape and then send the books and the tapes to the kids. Last night, we had a gal in to interview guys about it for a public radio broadcast. It's a great program. The inmates have a pool hall, a gym, and other exercise and play areas. So I asked, hey, where is the staff pool table? Sometimes I tease them. I told one inmate, wouldn't it be nice to have a swimming pool out here? We're located in the desert, and it's been plenty hot this summer, but it's finally cooling off. We have all these deer and bunnies running around because we're on some kind of animal preserve. I saw a beautiful big buck the other day on my way to work, 
standing next to a cornfield. All right, we're out of here. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckyliles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckyliles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.